Hey, thanks for tuning in. The audio presented to you is copyrighted by Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, God, I come before you this morning begging you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me to preach your word to your people. And Lord, that the word that I preach this morning that would affect the people here and that their lives would be changed by it. God, I pray that rather than my wisdom or my eloquence or our beauty as a church, God, that we would focus this morning on your glory as it has been poured out year after year for centuries and generations to your people. God, that we would capture again this morning the awe at your divine plan written before the beginning of time and executed with perfection. God, we ask these things in the strong name of your son Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to begin a new sermon series. We finished going through 1 Peter, um, and we're going to, here at Oak Ridge, we preach through books of the Bible, and we preach, I try to preach Old Testament and New Testament. So we preach an Old Testament book, and then we preach a New Testament book. Um, And so last year, we spent a considerable amount of time in the book of Judges. Uh, And so this year, we're going to be in uh, the book of 1 Samuel. So we're going to spend uh, the next couple of months, God willing, if he doesn't return, uh, going through the book of 1 Samuel. And I I think that um, this is really important and timely for us right now because 1 Samuel is a book that is all about leadership. It is a book about the redemption of a nation that had for all intents and purposes, fallen apart. And I I think that's incredibly important for us because, guys, we're coming into a season of leadership. We're coming into a season of leadership as a people because here in the United States, uh, we are uh, coming into a season of presidential election. Okay, now, I know that the election cycle is is almost continuous now, so it feels like we've been in an election cycle for the last ever, right? But... um, We're coming into next year as an election year, and so increasingly, we're going to be hearing about presidential candidates. Uh, In fact, if you are not living under a rock, you know that there is a tremendous amount of conversation that's going on about presidential candidates right now. Uh, We know that we've got one former president who's under indictment for a lot of different indictments. Some of those are spurious, whatever. We have another presidential candidate, that there, or another president, that people are trying really hard to indict, right? So there's lots of negative stuff going on dealing with leadership. In fact, if you look at uh, polls in the United States, you can see that this deeply divided country that can't really agree on anything, the majority of the people in the country agree 
They don't want either of those two guys as president. I think it's like 63% of Americans are like, we'd really like to choose other, okay? Now, regardless of how you feel about particular presidential candidates, the issue of leadership is critical. Because, see, most Americans believe that the country is headed in the wrong direction. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. If you ever read, uh, if you read uh, political essays uh, on the right, if you go to Fox News or uh, Daily Wire or any of these guys out there, uh, you will see that guys are thumping, jumping up and down and saying, we're headed in the wrong direction. As, uh, as my daughter is apt to say from reading all of her Anne of Green Gables books, the, coffee, the country is going to the dogs, right? It's the way we used to say that. And... and but then if you go on the left, you read like left-leaning newspapers and left-leaning articles. If you go to the Atlantic or Mother Jones or Huffington Post, which I occasionally do sometimes, you'll see that they say the exact same thing. Totally different reasons. Oh, the country's going to the dogs. It's terrible. The conservatives are ruining everything. They're totally in control. And I'm like, how is that? I don't understand. This doesn't... The one thing we can all agree on is the country is moving in the wrong direction, what we can agree on is who should be our leader and how we should get out of this. Well, guys, our story this morning, the story of 1 Samuel, comes to a country that is in the midst of the same kind of crisis. We find ourselves as a nation divided on every major issue from social policy to religion to foreign policy. Israel was in the same situation. If you remember, last year, as we came to the end of Judges, Israel had gone from the high point of the conquest of the land. They'd been led out of Egypt and, and into the Promised Land, and over 400 years, they had completely gooned it up. They had made every sin that you could possibly make. They had made every bad decision they could possibly be made. They had squandered the inheritance that had been given to them. The book, of first, the book of Judges ends in civil war as the Levites, the people that are supposed to lead Israel spiritually, have led them instead into brokenness, sin, and destruction. That is where our story picks up this morning. The book of 1 Samuel begins with the people of Israel in a spiritual and political mess of their own making. And we can begin to kind of see that as we, as we piece out some of those first verses in 1 Samuel. One of the things that we need to be careful of as Christians and evangelicals, we consider ourselves people of the book and we read the Bible a lot, but oftentimes we just skip over stuff. Right? As, uh, as Tony got ready to read this morning, there was this collective groan when the first two verses came up there, and y'all saw all the hard names. Get ready. We're going to be spending a month, months of hard names. But these names are important. All Scripture is God-breathed. There's lots of information there. So we read, there was a certain man of Ramatham Sophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Now normally, when we would read that, we'd just kind of skim through that and probably not even sound the words out in our own heads. 
But this is important. This confusing list of names and places tells us something very important about Israel at this time. Elkanah lived in Ramathon Zophim in Ephraim. Now, what you need to understand is that Ephraim is one of the tribal allotments. It's an area of land that God's people kind of, God gave it to certain groups. There's 12 tribes in Israel, and they're divided out, and each group has its own set of land. Ephraim is this place in kind of eastern and central Israel on the eastern side of, I'm sorry, on the western side of the Jordan River. It's kind of towards the coast. It is an area uh, about 16 miles outside of what is now Tel Aviv. Okay? That's where we're told that he's from. But then we begin to go through his genealogy and we realize he's not an Ephraimite. He's not one of the tribe of Ephraim. In fact, when we go to 1 Chronicles, what we find out is that he's a Levite. So what is a Levite doing in Ephraim? Well, one of the things that happened in the book of Judges was the Levites weren't given their own land. They were supposed to be the spiritual guides of Israel. They were the priestly class. They were the ones that were supposed to know the law. And so God, in his wisdom, scattered the Levites out throughout all 12 tribal areas. And that way there would always be priests around you. There were always supposed to be people that knew the law, living and, and uh, doing work with you and trading with you. And so, okay, that makes sense. But then we see something else here. Son of Tohu, son of Zuf, we're told that he's an Ephrathite. Well, an Ephrathite means something different. An Ephrathite was a person that is from Bethlehem in Judah. So somehow, some, man, some way, this Levite who was assigned to live in Bethlehem throughout the chaos of the judges period had moved all the way to the other side of Israel and was now living and had been living for generations in a different town. See, the man who would become the last and greatest of Israel's judges was born into a nation that had endured hundreds of years of social turmoil, outside invasion, and civil war. The land flowing with milk and honey, this gift of the God to the people, had been squandered by them. And now nobody was where they were supposed to be. And as we'll see in the next chapter, not even the religious practices had been broken. But see, that's just the beginning. See, Samuel was not just born into a broken nation, he was also born into a broken family. Elkanah had two wives, and as we read that, my wife leaned over to me and nudged me and said, well, that was his problem. <laughs> and brother, that is a problem. I've said this over and over again. Sometimes we as men like, have this like, secret place inside of our mind and be like, I wonder what that would be like, having two wives? Man, two wives? All right. No, it's not all right, guys. In fact, when we look in the Bible, it's, we have this kind of odd thing. God created us male and female, and he created marriage to be one woman and one man for life. And yet we see places in the, in the Old Testament where, where people are, are married to multiple women, and apparently God allowed this to happen. He wasn't in favor of it. But what we see over and over again is it never, ever ends well. 
right? It's never good. You never see in the Old Testament somebody who's like, yeah, he had multiple wives and everything was awesome for him all the time. Nothing ever went wrong. No. Think about, gentlemen, think about how hard it is to be married to one woman. Being married to two women doesn't divide the problem. It multiplies the problem. Twice the mother-in-laws. And I love my mother-in-law. Okay? Twice the mother-in-laws. Twice the drama. And as so often happens, his home is filled with drama. He has two wives. His first wife was named Hannah, which means grace-filled woman or a woman filled with favor. Okay? And she is obviously his favorite. It's his first wife, his favorite wife. We see other places how he treats her a little bit different. He elevates her a little bit. He treat, because that's what happens all the time. Like I've been to Africa where guys have multiple wives. There's always one that's the favorite. And then there's always the other wife who isn't the favorite, who hates the one who is the favorite. Okay? And he's got another wife. And her, her name is Penuel which means pearl or precious or fruitful, right? So there, already you can see how there would be problems here if he favors one over another, and he's going to favor one over another, but then there is a, a complexity that's added in. There's a, 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 an, a, a, an aggravating factor, and that's the fact that Hannah, who is his first wife and his favorite wife, is also barren. And so as we see that, we begin to see kind of what happened here. Seems that Elkanah married this woman who he loved, but she couldn't have kids. We read that God had closed her womb. She's barren. And I know that we live in a time right now that does not cherish children. We live in a time right now that treats children as an afterthought or as a complication or as something that distracts you from your life. It can be very difficult for us to understand just what it meant for a woman to be barren at this time. But at this time in Israel, children were incredibly important for lots of different reasons. First of all, most of the people there were farmers, or worked with their hands. More children meant more hands on the farm. You had more kids, more sons, they could do more work. I've noticed this as I've grown older. Um, when my kids go out of town, it's hard. everything in the house is harder. Don't tell my son this, but I see all the things that he does. I'm like, why is there trash still in the trash can? Oh, he didn't take it out. Laundry hasn't been done the Dishwasher hasn't been emptied. What are these kids? What am I doing? What's going to happen when these kids go off to college? I'm going to have to learn how to live again. Well, in the ancient world, it was even worse, right? Because you'd have a farm, and the more sons you had, the more sons could work the farm. The more wives, the more women could weave. You, you could create more and do more. It was a sign of wealth and power. A man with many sons could do many things. Not to mention the fact that there were no 401k plans in the ancient world. There was no retirement. There was no social security. There may not be social security when I retire. I don't know. But there definitely was no social security then. 
And so your children were supposed to take care of you. There were no assisted living facilities in Israel. Your assisted living facility was the back bedroom. That's where mom lived. Almost as importantly, children were power for the nation. The nation that could expand, that could have more sons. More sons could be more warriors. More warriors meant you won more battles. All of this combined to make a woman who had many children a heroine. She was a hero in the ancient world. She was honored, given a place of of importance within the family. But the flip side was also true. If you didn't have children, you were seen as superfluous, as good as dead. Women with sons were honored and treated as heroes. Women who were childless were treated as useless mouths and burdens on their families. And so it seems that Elkanah had married this second woman when it became apparent that his first wife couldn't have any children. And so Hannah's life devolved into one long series of pain and suffering. Israel's last and greatest judge was born into a broken family, living in a broken and shattered nation. And we need to understand that this is done intentionally, that God chose this woman intentionally and this family intentionally because throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is in the process of using broken tools to build beautiful things. God constantly and consistently uses that which this world sees as small and non-inconsequential to do important things. He uses illiterate fishermen, tax collectors and sinners and religious terrorists and even his worst enemy to build up his church. No, brothers and sisters, we need to see that. We need to understand that. We need to see other people the way that God sees other people. So often we fall into the trap of looking down on people the way that the world looks down on them. As a church, we, we, we think, oh, if we could just get more of this particular kind of person or that particular kind of person, we could be successful instead of looking around this church and seeing that there are 23,000 lost people here all of whom are precious in the sight of God, all of whom could be used effectively to build His kingdom. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have to see those around us the way that God sees them, as tools that can be used for His glory, as things that are precious, even though they don't look like it. But almost as importantly, guys, we have to see ourselves the way that God sees us. See, so often... We tell God, oh, you couldn't possibly use me. Oh, you can't use me. I'm broken. I'm not educated enough, or I'm not holy enough, or I'm not clean enough, or I'm not rich enough, or I'm not popular enough, or I'm not smart enough to be used by God. I'm just an extra in the movie. God doesn't have any extras. Every person that is saved is saved for a reason. 
Every person that God chooses and draws out from a broken world is a, is a remnant, is an element that is used in some amazing way for his glory. If we let him. So brothers and sisters, I would encourage you not to limit yourselves by your own categories. But instead be open to what God is going to do with you. And so we see Hannah beginning to do that. In verse 3 of the story, Samuel shifts from his father to his mother as everything comes to a head in a climactic trip to the sanctuary at Shiloh. We read, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now later on, we're going to get to know these guys, and these guys are train wrecks. These guys are terrible. Like they rob people and sexually assault the women that come to church. Like they're terrible, terrible guys. We just get kind of introduced to them here. Hophnius and Phineas, or Phineas and Hophni. Horrible priests of the Lord. On this day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all his sons and daughters. Now what you got to realize here is already... The system of religious observance in Israel is broken down. This is a faithful man, right? He's not a pagan. He's not worshiping golden idols or, or doing crazy stuff like some other parents of the judges did. No, this is a good guy, and he breaks all of God's laws right now. The people of Israel were supposed to go up to the temple or up to the, the, the tabernacle three times a year. They were supposed to go for the Feast of Booths, for the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, three times a year. But it's kind of devolved down to, hey, if you go once a year, you're a good guy. And so once a year, he'd be like, okay, we're going to do all the festivals together. We're going to get the family together. We're going to go up to Shiloh, which is where the tent of the Lord had been kind of situated. And he's going to go up there, and they're going to have one big sacrifice to cover all of the other ones. And this is what faithfulness looks like. And so he goes up there with his family, and it would have been an incredibly impactful time of the year for him. It would have been a big deal, lots of singing, lots of ritual washing, capped off with this sacrifice. And, and to understand kind of what the sacrifice looked like, you need to understand that in the Old Testament system... They would take the animal and they would take bread and they had all this kind of stuff and cakes and all these things that they would sacrifice to the Lord, but only a small portion of it was actually consumed. Most of it was meant for the family to share in this kind of huge ritual banquet. And so what they would do is they would kill this goat or a bull and they would take and they'd burn part of it on the altar and they'd put it all in a big cauldron and then the priest would come down and the priest would take some food out of there and then he'd take some food out and they'd give it to the, his wives and the wives would take the bread and the meat and they'd come break it up among their family and they'd all eat it and this is at a time when most people didn't eat meat most of the time. This was a special occasion. There was no paleo diet at this point. Most of what you ate was grain. Not tofu, but grain, like bread and stuff like that. It was like an all-gluten diet all the time. But this was like the one time a year when you got meat. And so we read that this good guy is heading up there, and he would give portions to Penea's wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, 
He gave a double portion. And this is a little bit of a misnomer. It doesn't mean that he would give her twice as much. It meant that he would give her the select cuts. The actual word in Hebrew is he gave her a double nostril. So there's a good possibility that he gave, him, he gave his wife the delicacy, which was the head of the goat. Okay? So those of you who like, what, barbacoa? Yeah, that's basically what we're talking about here. She got the cheap meat and all the tender stuff. Right? So he's like, he's like, oh, baby, I'm so sorry you don't have a kid, uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to make up for it by giving you the goat head. Here you go. That makes up for it, right? Because now he's caused even more problems with the other wife who's like, oh, why don't I ever get the goat head? I gave you 10 sons and all these daughters, and I never get the goat head. You always give it to this worthless woman who can't do anything for you. And so it causes problems. He gave her a double portion because he loved her. And so this went on year by year. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so there's, I want you to imagine what this scene looks like every year. It's this big, amazing party. They're sitting on rugs and carpets on the ground, and they're all passing food around. And, and, and you have Phineas, and she's over there, surrounded by her kids. They're all eating and drinking and having a good time. And, and she's in the midst of her massive family. And over on the other side is Hannah, sitting by herself, with this goat head in front of her, crying as her rival, as the other wife, makes fun of her, catcalls her, and mocks her, says things like, Why are you even here, Hannah? What do you have to celebrate? Why are you worshiping a God that closed up your womb? We'd be better if you weren't here at all. Nobody wants you here. You thought mean girls were a recent thing. And her husband, bless his heart, he does what all men who have made a mistake try to do. He tries to make it better by saying more stuff. His rival is taunting her, making fun of her, and he leans over, and he, in this clumsy effort, he tries to, to, to talk to her. He leans over and does what most husbands try to do when they resolve a situation. He digs the hole deeper. He says, at least you have me. Am I not better than ten sons? And you can see her just kind of, we, we read, Hannah, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, she, she pushed back from the table. She rose. You can, you can almost see her pushing back and, and saying, no, no, this sheep head and half-hearted pity of my husband does not give meaning to a meaningless life. No, you're not enough. But there's something else that's going on here, too. See, the, the word in Hebrew that we translate got up, it's not just this superfluous detail. It has a finality to it. It indicates decisive action. She stands up resolved and makes a choice that something has to change in her life. She doesn't need more of her husband, and she doesn't need more goat head, and she doesn't need... She doesn't know what she needs. 
but she doesn't need this. And so she makes this decisive change. See, the birth of Samuel, the turning point in Israel's history, began when a woman made a decision that enough was enough. Things in Israel began to change when she decided to take her life and the fate of her family into her own hands. Brothers and sisters, patience is a virtue, but sometimes, often, there is a virtue in getting fed up. There's a virtue in realizing that if I do the same things the same ways, I'm going to keep getting the same results. There is a time in everyone's life where they have to realize that the path that they're on is leading to destruction. And if you're honest with yourselves, everyone here has that moment. Probably multiple moments. When you realized that if you didn't change, that everything was going to fall apart. See, the problem with many Christians, the problem with many people in our country is not that we want too much. It's that we want far too little. It's that we are satisfied with the scraps coming off a broken table. We settle for bad marriages and broken communities and sick churches and we throw our hands up in the air and we say, well, it's just what it is. I'll make do. Brothers and sisters, often we are allowing people to lull us into accepting empty and meaningless lives filled with products, services, and experiences meant to dull, a, dull the ache of a wasted life. We're afraid to change because we're afraid we're going to lose what we have. But guys, you need to understand this. We don't need to fear death or inconvenience. We need to fear living a life that doesn't matter. And it is only on the other side of that fear that we begin to have movement. Listen, many of you want closer relationships with God. You'll come to me and you'll say, oh, I want to know what God wants from me. Or I feel distant from God. Or I, I, I want to I spend more time. I want to grow closer to God. I want to learn more about the Bible. You know how you learn more about God? You know how you deepen your relationship with God? Set your alarm clock 30 minutes earlier. Many of you want to know God, but you're not willing to set your alarm clock 30 minutes earlier. Because that's what it takes. It takes turning your TV off and setting your phone down. It's a small price, but most of you won't pay it. It takes changing the decisions you make prioritizing things that are not fun, things that don't give you an instant hit of dopamine in your brain, things that you got to work for a little bit. See, deep down inside of us, most of us are lazy. We want change, but we're not willing to pay the price. I want to be 60 pounds lighter, but guess what? I don't want it bad enough to not eat donuts. At least I'm honest. And that's not going to change 
until carrying this weight gets so onerous that I put the donut down. And the same thing for y'all. You are not going to make a decision to follow God until your current life gets so overwhelmingly difficult that you choose to make some changes. But oh, brothers and sisters, I want you to know this. There is beauty and peace and meaning on the other side of that decision. When you decide to change what you're doing, when you decide to give up the things that are weighing you down and begin to reach out for Christ, there is blessing and peace on the other side of that. And Hannah's going to discover that. Hannah is done with the status quo, and so she decides to do something about her problem. But what sets her apart is that she decides to go for the right things. She doesn't get up and kill her family and run off and become a bandit. She doesn't go cheat on her husband or demand that her husband throw the other woman out. She doesn't do any of those things. You know what Hannah does? Hannah goes to the Lord. She says, my life is a flaming wreck. She gets up from the table. She's deeply distressed and prays to the Lord and weeps bitterly. She has no, this isn't like, a, like a, a, one of those prayers where we're just kind of like, oh Lord, please put a hedge of protection around my, no, it's not like that. She is on her face before God, pouring out who she is. She doesn't care who sees her. That's where real prayer comes from. It comes from a brokenness so deep that you don't care who sees you. That's the prayer that God listens to. That's the prayer that he hears. Oh, brothers and sisters, that we would be a people that come honestly before God. That we don't care about what other people see or how we look. And we would pour out our lives to God in prayer. Hannah does. And what does she do? She doesn't just pray to God. She makes God a vow. She tells God, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and do not forget your servant but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. That's an odd thing for a woman who doesn't have a child to do. To say, oh God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. But guys, that's what the Lord wants from us. Every Sunday morning when we come in here and we start talking about the offering, I say that we give God control. We declare his control over all things by giving back to him a portion of what he's given to us. And so what does Hannah say? She says, the first thing that I will do, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. I will dedicate him to you as a Nazarite. I'll give him back to you. Because it's not about the son. This isn't about having a son to care for her in her old age. This is about God relieving her soul of its lostness, of her brokenness. She wants to see God moving in her life. And so she makes this vow and she pours out her heart. And in this last image of how broken Israel is, this woman who is having a very real encounter with the living God, who is pouring out her soul in a real and authentic way, the priest, Eli, comes up to her and can't recognize it. He has no idea what real devotion to God looks like. 
He's like, oh, you're overcome by emotion? You must be drunk. How messed up does it have to be as a pastor, as a priest, to see somebody in the midst of an encounter with God and it be so odd to you that you think that they're drunk? That's how far Israel had fallen. He saw actual devotion to God so rarely that he didn't know what it looked like when he saw it. And yet even there, even with a broken woman in a broken nation, from a broken family, with a broken church, God still shows up. And Eli, this man who has raised worthless sons and presided over the final decay of Israel, this man, even in his last final scene, he begins to recognize God. And he calls out to Hannah. And he tells her, or rather prays for her, that God will hear her prayer. And I need you to understand this. This is not a prophecy. This is him doing his job. He comes alongside a hurting woman and he prays for her. And you know what happens? Nothing. She doesn't instantly become pregnant. There's no theodicy or theophany. God doesn't show up. There's no fiery bolt. Hannah gets up. She wipes her tears. And she leaves rejoicing. Often when we talk about prayer, we talk about Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayers and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And then God will give you a Cadillac. <laughs> nah, that's not what it says. It doesn't say that God will answer all your prayers or that you will have faith and favor and blessing You'll be able to go on Instagram and say that you're hashtag blessed. No. He says, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in the knowledge and the love of Christ Jesus. And so this woman who is still from a broken family, this woman who is still barren, this woman who is still useless in the eyes of her society, goes home rejoicing because she has put her faith in God. And then out of that comes the miracle. The joy doesn't come before the miracle, y'all. The miracle comes after the joy. And she becomes pregnant. And she has Samuel. And we're going to spend the rest of the fall learning about Samuel and the work that he does and the way that he brings Israel Back to her God. The important thing for us to understand today is that the turning point in the history of Israel begins when a broken woman takes control of her life and her family and places them firmly in the care of God. Hannah is decisive, but she is decisively faithful. And brothers and sisters, as we stand in the midst of broken families and a broken community and a broken nation, I, I, I wonder if we have the faith to be decisively faithful. 
If we can turn our country and our community and our families over to the God of Samuel and of Eli. See, God has chosen to raise up the last and greatest of Israel judges from a broken family and the humblest of women. He is calling a remnant out from Israel and he will turn it into the greatest nation that Israel has ever known. It is right on the other side of this decision that Israel finds David her king and reaches the height of its power and its majesty and its glory. And I wonder if you feel that. That your best days might not be behind you. They might be ahead of you. That the best days of our nation may not be behind us, but they might be ahead of us. When we put our trust in God, that the best days of our community, that the the people around us, it may not be that our community is moving towards decay and destruction. That maybe this church will be the anchor of something new and beautiful in this community. Something filled with Christ and centered on Him. That maybe your best days were not when you were 20 or 30 or 40 or God forbid 50 or 60, but that your best days might be ahead of you. As you finally do the things that God has called you to do. God is changing things. And we have to be prepared for God to use unexpected things in amazing ways for His glory and our good. And that may be the person that you don't think God could ever use, and it might be you. But you need to be open for God to move. So my question for you this morning is, are you open for the movement of God in this church? Are you ready for it? Are you open to it? Are you ready for God to use you in an amazing and new direction? That may mean doing something that makes you uncomfortable. In fact, I guarantee you that it means God using you to do something that is uncomfortable. And I want to throw out a couple of opportunities right now. In about an hour, after we get done with our very short business meeting, we're going to go underneath the bridge and we're going to serve a meal. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe that's scary to you. Homeless people are scary. But I'd encourage you. Maybe today God is calling you to do something uncomfortable. Like going down and feeding some of God's most forgotten children. Maybe you'll go out and grab somebody's hand and pray for them. This person that you normally avoid and turn your face away. Maybe you ask them how they're doing and then genuinely listen to them. Maybe that's what God's calling you today. But there's so many other things, brothers and sisters. We have a school right down the block from us that is literally begging us to send mentors. Begging us. Principal came to me and said, please give me your men. Send them into this, into this school. I don't care if you tell them about Jesus. Just care about them going to require a little bit of extra. Maybe you going and getting up early 
talking to a child who you don't understand, who maybe doesn't look like you or doesn't speak the way you speak. Maybe that's not what God's calling you to. Maybe he's calling you to share the gospel. In about a month, we're going to have a discipleship and evangelism training at this church. It's going to train you to share the gospel, and then we're going to send you out into an apartment complex to share the gospel with lost people. So right there, there's three opportunities for you to step outside of your comfort zone and to do the things that God is calling you to do. See, things change when we turn to God and not ourselves. Things change when we see ourselves the way that God sees us. And things change when we turn to the true hero of the story. Because see, the true hero of this story is not Samuel, and it's not even David. The true hero of this story is the one that Samuel and David would point to, to Jesus, the one who would be born by a woman who is even in worse situation than Hannah was, a boy who was born to an even lesser family, to a nation that was even more broken, who would grow into an even greater prophet and priest and king for his people. A man who would come to die for our sins, to buy us a relationship with God. So as we go through the book of Samuel, I want you to never forget that as we look for a leader and as Israel looked for a leader, that we have a leader. He paid for our sins and died to lead us into a new life. And if you have never made a decision to follow him, every Sunday after we get done preaching, we offer an invitation. That is an opportunity for you to come and make a decision to follow him, either by accepting him as Lord and Savior, or by accepting him in a call to ministry, or by accepting him to come and transform your family. It is a call to be with him, to listen to him and let him lead you. In a moment, we're going to have a song of invitation, and I want to encourage you to respond to the call of God on your life, to surrender to him by following him.